Welcome to the weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is Friday, October 2nd, 2009. I'm Alana Rangi. Wow, October. How time flies. It feels like just yesterday that... Yeah, yeah, we all do it. Reminisce about time passing and the good old days. Wouldn't it be awesome if we could just be young forever? Well, that might not be so far-fetched. If you ask Aubrey de Grey, that is. De Grey is a biomedical gerontologist who studies regenerative medicine. That is, how to stop us from aging. De Grey spoke as part of the SNC Provocative Thinkers in Science series this month. Today, you'll hear about his research and his belief that we can live much longer lives with the help of science. My name is Aubrey de Grey. I'm the Chief Science Officer of a US registered charity called the Sense Foundation. That's SENS, as in S E N S, which stands for Strategies for Engineered Negligible Senescence. Which means what? Specifically, we're focused on applying the general principle of regenerative medicine to aging, thereby to develop techniques that will actually be able to reverse people's biological age. Yes, you heard him right. Aubrey de Grey wants to reverse aging. The SENS Foundation is brand new, launched earlier this year in March. But de Grey has been at this for more than 20 years. I was originally a computer scientist. I got my degree, uh, my undergraduate degree in computer science in 1985. And I worked in software verification, which is essentially the area where we try to write software that finds bugs in other software. I did that for about seven or eight years, during which I met my wife, who is a biologist and who is also a lot older than me, 19 years older than me. She was, at the time we met, a full professor at UC San Diego, and she was on sabbatical in Cambridge, so we met then. And I ended up learning a lot of biology over the next few years, over the dinner table, by accident, The result was eventually I started to begin to wonder why we were not actually discussing ageing very much. Because it had always been a sort of, so obvious that I never even thought about it or talked about it, that ageing was the major unsolved problem in biology, the major thing that we didn't know how to do anything about. And I really didn't think much of the answers I got. First of all, Adelaide and indeed other people of her generation, senior biologists, appeared to regard ageing as not very interesting, and then they also regarded it as not very important, as sort of not their problem. And I was utterly horrified by this. It was really the um, time at which I began to understand the difference between the curiosity-driven mindset of basic scientists and the more goal-directed mindset of technologists, and I very much counted myself among the latter, really. And so, yes, so I decided eventually that there was nothing for it. I was going to have to switch fields. And switch fields he did. If you haven't heard of de Grey, just Google him. Yes, that's him with the long beard and ponytail, all over the media. De Grey is tall and thin and extremely well-spoken when it comes to his research, as you'll hear. He's fighting a tough battle. A lot of other scientists argue that his research is irrelevant, impossible, or just plain silly. He's provocative, and so is his science. It's very straightforward to describe how the approach that I favour for combating ageing differs from the approaches that gerontologists and geriatricians take. Essentially, my my approach is intermediate between the gerontology approach, as I call it, and the geriatrics approach. The geriatrics approach intervenes rather late in the game. Geriatricians are not interested in young people because uh, young people don't have anything uh, 
grossly wrong with them yet. It's only when things start to go wrong in a, in a medically definable way that geriatricians start to get interested and try to slow down the rate at which this, goes, that this progresses. Gerontologists, on the other hand, at least insofar as they're interested in doing anything about ageing, they're not very interested in old people because old people are too far gone, so to speak. Gerontologists are interested in, if you like, looking at the whole life course and trying to slow down the things that go on throughout life and that are eventually going to contribute to the emergence of age-related ill health. I say, well, actually, that sounds good. Prevention is better than cure, but it's too preemptive because there's just too much we don't know about how our bodies work, about how metabolism works. And so, um, you know, if we do any intervention that might actually have such an effect, then 90% of the time it just won't work. The, the body will just sort of laugh in our face and get on and do what it was doing anyway. That's certainly been the message when we've tried to use, for example, antioxidants. Or alternatively, if we do make some difference, then we'll also make other differences we weren't expecting and we'll do more harm than good. And my feeling is maybe it's going to be possible to let metabolism work the way it normally does, lay down these various types of molecular and cellular damage, as I call them, at the rate that it normally does. And if we do that, then the only thing we have to do in order to prevent the pathologies from emerging is to go in and repair that damage, those precursors of pathology, reasonably well, periodically, so that the overall level of accumulated damage never actually rises on the long term and never actually reaches this pathogenic threshold. Degree's maintenance approach to anti-aging centers largely around this thing he calls damage. I really wish I had a more evocative word, but there you go. I define damage simply as the set of ongoing, lifelong side effects of metabolism that eventually contribute, when they've accumulated enough, to the emergence and progression of age-related ill health. In fact, he gets more specific than that and has narrowed it down to seven precise types of damage. Are you ready? Here they are. The accumulation of intracellular junk, the accumulation of extracellular junk, too few cells, too many cells, mutations in chromosomes, mutations in mitochondria, and protein crosslinks. Basically, if we compare our bodies to cars, by the time we reach 100,000 miles, we're starting to get pretty clunky. DeGray argues that just like cars, it should be possible for humans to go into the shop and get a full body workover, like a new muffler, a new transmission, new windshield wipers, whatever, and hit the road again, better than we were before. So what's the human equivalent of a new muffler or an oil change? DeGray has a few ideas. Like when it comes to intracellular junk, for instance, which is buildup of material or cell waste within our individual cells, which normally gets cleaned out. But with aging, it can accumulate, causing some major problems. DeGray hypothesized that if we could find some way to get the intracellular junk out without causing other damage, we could solve the problem. So, DeGray looked laterally across scientific fields for his solution. Here's DeGray in the lecture he gave a few weeks ago. What I've got here is a small description of something that was put forward around 55 years ago by a guy named Ed Gale, and he called it the microbial infallibility hypothesis. His interest was the fact that if you go to a particular environment, any environment you like, really, in the, in the wider world, and you look at the microbial ecology, you will find an awful lot of different bacterial and microbial species growing happily together there. And he said, well, why should this be? This seems rather strange. What one would surely expect is that there will be like one or two species that will just win out. They'll be able to grow faster on the stuff that's around. 
And that's not what we see. So he thought about this. And he said, well, okay, maybe what's actually going on is that some of the bacterial species in, this, in, in some chosen environment are growing more slowly than others, but there are things they can grow on that the fast-growing species can't grow on. And if that were the case, then you can see that you could end up with both of the species, the fast-growing ones and the, um, the clever ones that can eat unusual things, being able to maintain their ecological niche. And this is exactly the case. It turns out that if you have your disused airfield and you want to build your housing estate, then a very promising, a very effective way of going about this is to go and actually isolate the microbes, the various species of microbes, from that environment and to look at them closely and test whether they can actually break down the pollutant. And you will almost always find that there are some bacteria there that can break down the pollutant. And the only reason the pollutant is still there is because there are not enough of those bacteria. So you expand them up in the lab, put them back in the environment of interest in greater numbers, and your pollutant goes away and you can build your housing estate. So, thought de Grey, if there were bacteria in nature that could devour one specific toxin, there might be bacteria whose favorite toxin was unwanted intracellular junk. De Grey was right. So here is a representative experiment from the laboratory that we run in Sunnyvale. 7-ketocholesterol is public enemy number one in atherosclerosis. It is one of a number of different oxidative modifications that happen to cholesterol occasionally in the body, but it's one of the most abundant and also one of the most toxic. It's definitely a really nasty thing, and we'd like to get rid of it. And so here's what we did. We just took a whole bunch of different bacteria that are isolated from all over the world because we, were, we just you know, made, a, made an appeal and lots of people who didn't fancy the idea of getting atherosclerosis sent us various soil samples from various places and we tried them out. We grew a whole bunch of different bacterial strains on this stuff, 7-ketocholesterol, and for most of them nothing happened whatsoever because they didn't know how to break it down. But the two of them here, these two, they knew all about what to do and they got rid of it in no time at all. After 10 days it was all gone. You didn't need a microscope to see the difference. Here's black here's before and after. That's just one step, of course. After that, we've got to figure out how they're doing it. We've got to figure out what the genetic basis is for their ability to break down these substances in order to be able to apply that genetic basis to our own cells. And so this is one of the approaches that we've been taking. We've been doing what's called mass spectrometry on the breakdown products of the metabolism of these bacteria that are able to break down the things of interest. And these are the sorts of things we're finding out, how they're doing it. That's a very good way of getting hints as to what enzymatic reactions are occurring. DeGray is always sure to point out that even though they've made big leaps in the lab, there's still a long way to go before we're injected with intracellular junk-eating bacteria. But, he says, it's a start. And when paired with other research, makes for a pretty solid argument. Take his research on mitochondrial mutations, for instance. Mitochondria, as you may remember from 10th grade biology, are the powerhouse of the cell. They have their own tiny set of DNA, different than the DNA in the cell's nucleus, which codes only 13 proteins. But mitochondria are made up of more than 100 proteins, which are produced elsewhere in the cell. So basically, the cell imports important proteins into its mitochondria to complete their protein set. Now, most of the time, this system works perfectly. The cell imports proteins into the mitochondria, and the mitochondria produces its own proteins to do its energy-producing job. 
But the mitochondrial DNA sit right next to the mitochondrial food processing machinery that produces all sorts of damage-inducing molecules. Now, in theory, the cell should be able to repair the damaged mitochondria before anything gets out of hand. But in practice, it doesn't always work like that. Essentially, all the damaged mitochondria start building up, and when we get enough of them, we start seeing problems. De Grey wasn't the first scientist to wonder if it might be possible to manually repair the broken mitochondrial DNA, or mutant DNA, as it's called. But he was among the first to figure out the beginnings of a process that might actually work. About 20 years ago, uh, people started to wonder whether it might be possible to take the genes encoding these 13 proteins, the genes from the mitochondrial DNA, and put them in the nucleus, modified in such a way that the proteins that were encoded would be targeted, would be substrates for the protein import machinery of the mitochondria. And it turns out that in principle, that's very straightforward. You have to make some small um, sequence changes because the genetic code is different in the mitochondria, and there's four of the 64 codons that are different. But that's obviously trivial from a biotechnological point of view. You also have to put a leader sequence on the front, a, se a sequence of amino acids is needed at the end terminus of the protein to, that, that suggests you know, an address uh, barcode sort of thing that says this is a this is a mitochondrial protein, rather in the same way that proteins have such a sequence if they're supposed to be secreted. And that seemed, in principle, to be all one needed to do. And so some people in Australia had a go at this in the mid-80s, just with one of the proteins that are encoded this way. And it worked first time pretty well. They were able to actually demonstrate bona fide phenotypic rescue. In other words, they took a strain of, of yeast that had a mutation in the corresponding gene in the mitochondrion, in the mitochondrial DNA, and they put this nuclear version in, and it worked. The yeast could, could breathe properly. So that was great. And everyone was very optimistic that this would be a straightforward thing. They didn't really think very hard about the, quest, about the evolutionary questions of why on earth we have mitochondrial DNA in the first place, if it's that easy. And people were making up really very implausible reasons why mitochondrial DNA still exists. But anyway, they were thinking, well, this is not going to be too hard. And they had a go at some of the other genes, and they couldn't get any of them to work. Essentially, the message after a long, a long time and a lot of frustration was that the gene that was successful was very small, and basically you could do anything with something that's small enough, 48 amino acids, if I remember rightly. But things that are bigger just fold up too tightly. The machinery that gets proteins into the mitochondria needs to unfold them. And uh, the proteins that are encoded in the mitochondrial DNA are really viciously hydrophobic, which means, of course, when they fold up, they really don't like to unfold again. Um, so they just get stuck in the machinery. And that actually means that if you express these things, then it's worse than not actually... Um, rescuing the mutations in the mitochondrial DNA, you actually end up being, it ends, ends up being toxic because it saturates the machinery and the proteins that ought to be able to get in can't get in either. So anyway, that was a bit of a disaster and everyone more or less gave up. And when I came along in the mid to late 90s, I started looking at this question because I felt that this was the holy grail of addressing the problem of mitochondrial mutations in ageing and in, in diseases. And I realised that a lot of oversimplifications had been made. A lot of people had given up too soon. I realised in particular that it might be possible to reduce the hydrophobicity of these proteins enough to allow them to be imported because quite respectably hydrophobic proteins can be imported. The machinery is good, it's just not quite good enough. So to reduce the hydrophobicity mildly just by appropriate amino acid substitutions that would, you know, not, not change things too much. For example, ones that one would find in concentrated species. That was an idea that I thought had some promise. And when we started funding work in this area, that was the approach that we mainly followed. However, right around the time we started working in this space, about maybe three years ago, there was a massive breakthrough made 
by a group in Paris, which allowed us to adopt, which, which caused us basically to switch tactics more or less completely. And this breakthrough was showing that an approach that had been thought of before, maybe 15 years previously, and that I knew about, but that I had never rated as likely, was in fact going to work. Uh, and that was to cause these proteins to be imported co-translationally. So it turns out that in most species, certainly in yeast, which is where this was discovered, a lot of mitochondrial proteins that are already encoded in the nucleus are imported into the mitochondrion in a rather strange way. The classical assumption is you've got the gene is, the gene is in the nucleus, of course, it's transcribed, the uh, message is exported to the cytosol, the protein is translated, the protein is then targeted to the mitochondrion, and it goes in. Okay, turns out that's not what happens. For quite a lot of proteins, in, in yeast anyway, what happens is the message is, uh, is synthesized in the nucleus, obviously, and um, exported to the cytosol, and then the message itself, the messenger RNA, is targeted to the mitochondrion. It's not imported, it's only targeted to the outside of the mitochondrion, but that's Rather, rather interesting, because then what happens is, of course, protein synthesis occurs in the normal way, and protein import into the mitochondrion occurs too at the same time. In other words, import is happening while the protein is still being synthesized. Now, if this is happening, then, of course, the hydrophobicity problem just doesn't arise, because the protein doesn't have the opportunity to fold up before it's been imported. So this is an enormous way of sidestepping, it's a brilliant way of sidestepping the whole thing, if you can control it. And the big discovery three years ago was a way to control it. Uh, um, the discovery was essentially that the genes, that the proteins whose message is trans translocated in this way, the message is translocated as a result of part of the three prime untranslated region of the, of the message. So of course that's glorious. It means that you can stick that sequence, that, that, that three prime untranslated sequence, onto the back of any coding region you like, and lo and behold, you can co-translationally import whatever protein you like. And so in principle, it looks as though the whole problem of hydrophobicity in, in getting this to work had been solved. And actually, to be perfectly honest, at this point, it looks as though in practice it's probably been solved. There's been only modest progress since then, but the reason there's been only modest progress is because there's still only this one lab working on it because a lot of other people just think it's a bit too good to be true. And they've had some just you know, tedious non-technical problems. For example, the lab above them had a fire, so they had to relocate to the other side of Paris, things like that. You know, they've had just, you know, the sort of crap that happens in real life. Right. Um, but in terms of whether we really have got a general solution to the key problem of what is called allotopic expression, this whole idea of putting these things in the nucleus, I still feel very optimistic that we have basically cracked the main problem now. Again. It'll be a while before we're translating brand new proteins into our mitochondria when they need a fix-up. But de Grey argues that the science is there, and that actually, it won't be as long as we think. The reason I'm so optimistic and willing to go out on a limb like this and talk about real breakthroughs is because it's not very far away. It is far enough away that it, one is still being very speculative in talking about time frames. But I feel that one has a duty to talk about time frames to the best of one's ability because, you know, if you just refuse to say anything, then people will make up their own answers and their answers are going to be even worse than yours. I do come up with numbers here. I think that we have a 50-50 chance of developing these technologies to the decisive point, to the point where they're good enough to make a decisive difference within about 25 years from now. I think that we are within only 10 years, probably a little less if we're lucky, of getting to that point in the laboratory, in other words with mice, so as to essentially prove the concept, so that we can take middle-aged mice and fix them up well enough in all of these various ways that they get an extra couple of years of healthy lifespan. 
So then why is there so much opposition from other scientists about de Grey's work? A big one within the scientific world is that the science that I'm bringing together to um, you know, create this panel of interventions that will jointly have this effect, or I believe it will jointly have this effect, this is a panel of areas of science that has not been brought together before. So the people working in these various different areas simply don't know each other's work. In particular, people who call themselves card-carrying gerontologists don't know this stuff. This stuff is basically, uh, in one way or another, broadly defined, it's regenerative medicine. It's trying to restore the structure of a damaged tissue to the state it was before damage. Regenerative medicine is normally thought of at the cellular level, you know, with stem cell therapy and tissue engineering. If we broaden that and we include the subcellular molecular level, then we basically cover the basis of what I'm talking about. Regenerative medicine has grown up within biology as a whole, but not within gerontology. And, for example, the, um, the technology that I just spoke about with regard to the mitochondrial DNA, this is something, you know, m people who work on mitochondria have known that mitochondrial mutations accumulate during aging and they might be important, and occasionally they've used this fact to get nice high-profile papers in science and nature, but the fact is that they don't really work on aging. They think of themselves as mitochondriologists, and their main target when they think in terms of therapeutic relevance of their work is early-onset mitochondriopathies, things that are caused by inherited mitochondrial mutations, for example. So there's really not a lot of crosstalk. And the result is that gerontologists have proceeded on their way thinking that it's still, you know, awfully far away that we'll be able to do anything about aging. And whenever anyone comes along and suggests otherwise, of course, there is the tendency to fear that the field will be brought into disrepute. There is, of course, a rather long and undistinguished history of people saying that they know how to fix aging when they don't. And um, you know, anything that has a sort of scent of that is, 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 is very much something that gerontologists run away from and tend to voice disapproval of. But the disapproval isn't stopping de Grey. And he says one of the reasons he started the SENS Foundation in the U.S. instead of his native Britain is because of America's can-do attitude. But I can't help wondering if we need to adopt a can-do attitude to first living healthier lives. Is beneath all of that a fundamental belief that people should just take better care of themselves in general? Actually, my belief is rather the opposite. Mm -hmm. I think that it, at the moment it's important to take care of yourself if you want to live a long time, but ultimately it's a matter of personal choice. Most people who smoke know that it's a shame that they smoke, but since they're in that situation, it's a choice of quality versus quantity. And, you know, it's, it's pretty hard to argue with the uh, legitimacy of personal choice with regard to how one wants to spend one's life, even if it is going to cause shortening of one's life. So I'd like to simply offer the best of both worlds. I'd like to put people in a situation where they can live the way they want to live, and it doesn't um, result in shortening of their lives. So according to DeGray, if his research holds up, you can keep eating your Big Macs and sitting on your sofa watching TV. Sounds pretty tempting, doesn't it? DeGray says you can help. We have an in-house laboratory in Sunnyvale in California, which is focused on some of the, um, er some of the more challenging areas of SANS. Uh, we also have work going on all over the world, actually, um, in labs, in extramurally funded labs, including actually we have collaboration with a professor at Columbia. And we also have an undergraduate at Columbia who's doing some work for us in a lab at Albert Einstein. So yes, um, essentially the thing to do if you're interested in getting involved in this, whether in terms of doing something in the lab or in any other way for that matter, is simply to go to our website and, and um, email us. And that website is www.sens.org.
For Science in the City, I'm Alana Rangi. If you can't get enough of Science in the City, you should try following us on Twitter. Visit us at www.twitter.com slash city. Science in the City is a non-profit program of the New York Academy of Sciences. This means that we need your continued support to keep bringing you this weekly podcast series, as well as the rest of the Science in the City program, like our event series and our new website. For more information on Academy membership or to support Science in the City today, log on to scienceandthecity.org. And as always, we would love your feedback on any of the programs we run here at Science in the City. Send us an email at scienceandthecity at nyas.org. Or you can leave us a voicemail at 212-298-8654. See you next week.